Well, hey, friends, welcome to Teaching Thursdays, an edition of the Better Bible Reading Podcast with yours truly, Kevin Morris. And we are in for another treat because we're back in theoretical practical theology with Peter Van Maastricht. I sound like a broken record at this point, probably, but you never know how many of you are new listeners, just joined us, don't know what Teaching Thursdays is all about. This is really a collection of sermons. Sunday school recordings, and in this case, a study of theology, study of systematic theology, and specifically a study of Peter Van Maastricht's systematic theology, which he calls theoretical practical theology. We've been in this book for a number of months now, and we are really just starting to open up his uh, main subject matter and he's really addressing uh, a foundational question. Uh, what is the nature of theology? And last time we were together, he introduced uh, what he called the definitum of theology, and we worked our way all the way up to page number 80, uh, where we're dealing with his elinctic part, in other words, his uh, argumentative part, uh, addressing the argument of Christian theology by interacting with uh, differing views. And so last time we were together, we talked about how natural and special revelation interact with one another, and how that helps us understand uh, how God is revealed to us, and how that helps us understand the interaction between uh, Christian theology as something to be accepted and practiced versus something that we just kind of dream up out of thin air, uh, what the foundation, according to the Bible, is in terms of theology, and how natural theology can either become an aid to that discussion, or it can go way off into left field. So we talked about a lot of different aspects of that. Today, we're going to be focusing in on page number 80 and work our way all the way up to page number 86. So we're dividing this first uh, part, the definitive of theology, into several different episodes, but that's just so we have time to really interact with Peter Van Maastricht's ideas in a way that doesn't feel so rushed. Uh, And so today is the elinctic part. Next time, we'll deal with the practical part. Uh, But the main question is focusing in on natural theology, and Peter Van Maastricht addresses uh, several different questions that we should ask, and then he goes about uh, answering them in uh, the positive or in the negative. So he's he's either going to substantiate a particular claim, or he's going to refute that claim. That's what he's doing in the elinctic part of this argument about theology. Uh, well, if you are a new listener, I wanted to let you know that the Better Bible Reading Podcast, and uh, in particular, Teaching Thursdays, is brought to you, it's made possible by my listening supporters. And the way that I uh, encourage people to become supporters of Better Bible Reading, uh, because right now we don't have merchandise on sale, we don't have courses for you to purchase or anything like that, although there are some things in the works for uh, the not-so-distant future. Uh, what I use is Patreon.com. My list of patrons has been growing slow and steady over the last couple years. I'm super thankful for that uh, because it allows me to invest in 
uh, some other background workings of better Bible reading, such as book publishing and course building and all that kind of stuff. So I'm super, super uh, encouraged and thankful for my patrons because they not only allow me to do that, but they also help me uh, to cover the costs of what it takes to run a website and all of the all of the expenses uh, that are associated with something like this. So you have the patrons of Better Bible Reading to thank uh, for this show being available on YouTube and if you're listening to the podcast version of it. And if you want to become a supporter of Better Bible Reading, just head on over to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash better Bible reading. You'll be able to find out all the additional details from there. All right. So we had that covered. Now let us zoom in on page number 80. And let me give you the different questions that Peter Van Maastricht is going to try to cover for us uh, throughout this episode. Uh, Number one, he's going to ask, is the theology of the pagans true? Uh, Number two, we make our way to page 82. He says, is any kind of natural theology allowed? Number three on page 83, is natural theology sufficient for salvation? And then he's going to give uh, one more question. Number four, what should we think about scholastic theology? So he's covering a lot of different ground there. Uh, but the but the umbrella phrase, uh, natural theology, is what he's dealing with. If you want to find out more about natural theology, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the previous episode because we dealt with that. So he's building off of what, he, what we talked about last time. And now, uh, having dealt with natural theology, now uh, he addresses the first question, is the theology of the pagans true? Uh, so I'm not going to read all of what he says, uh, but here are a few things to consider. Uh, he says this, first, it is asked whether the theology of the pagans, which we have distinguished from natural theology, is true. So note that he's making a distinction here uh, between what we might call natural theology and secular theology. Uh, he uh, cites several different pagan writers and the way that they introduce theological matters. Uh, And he says, uh, the pagan writers who taught about theology and theological matters uh, without hesitation will answer in the affirmative. Uh, He says, Christians, Jews, Muslims, and all those who receive some sort of canonical scripture deny it with one voice. So, in a roundabout way of saying, uh, the pagan writers of theology and those who support their claims will say that, yes, uh, theology of the pagans is true. He says, but not only Christians, but even Jews and Muslims, anybody that says that they've received some kind of a canonical writing. So uh, for Jews, it's the Old Testament. For Christians, it's the whole of the Bible, the New and the Old Testament. Uh, For Muslims, it's their Quran, and we might even insert uh, somebody like Mormons. Uh, So he's saying, even in these divergent religions here, uh, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and I'm adding here Mormonism, uh, even though these divergent religions uh, that don't agree with one another would agree with one another on the point that pagan theology is not true. And he gives a few reasons for that. Uh, He says, we grant, number one, 
uh, that pagan theology does contain some true things about God. Uh, So pagan theology is not totally wrong just because it is pagan. Uh, He says that there might be some things in pagan theology. I might even add here, you might find some things in the Quran, or you might find some things in the Book of Mormon, or you might find uh, Buddhist teachings uh, that do say some true things about God or speak to something uh, about the truthfulness of God that we profess as Christians from our Bibles. He cites Romans 119, 20, and chapter 2, 14, and 15. So we all have the law of God written on our hearts. We all are made in the image of God. And we all understand that there is a God, not only that there is a God in general, but that the one true God is the one true God. Uh, We can't escape this, but even though we profess that in some way, sometimes without meaning to, uh, he says that this pagan religion or various pagan theologies might say something true about God, because you almost can't help but do that when all of us are made in his image. We might... uh, uh, coincidentally speak to something true about him. He says, the caveat is, uh, not only does Romans 1 teach that, although we know who God is, we distort that, uh, but he says that nevertheless, uh, pagan theology does not have the true God, that is the triune God. And he says the majority of the things that it held concerning the one God were not true. So he says there's a lot of distortion mingled in here. Now, if you're trying to have in your mind what he means by pagan theology, uh, there's a lot of different things that we might say that he's referring to. But one example would be how in the Old Testament, you have a lot of uh, Babylonian accounts of creation. You have different gods of the Old Testament nations that are kind of right there alongside the Jews. And if you find yourself both in liberal circles of theology, if you're part of a liberal or even secular uh, representation of a, a theology department at school or something like that, or even in conservative circles, it's very common to interact with uh, the ancient Near Eastern gods uh, that places like Babylon or Egypt had in mind. And the interesting thing, when you read uh, flood accounts from other nations or creation accounts from other nations, you will notice some spillover. Uh, even if you look at the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, uh, that you do have uh, writings of I keep going back to the Babylonians, but they're a really good example of this, writings that do seem to mirror at points uh, what you see in the Old Testament. And so the question is either, well, did the Old Testament just, you know, steal from those traditions? Uh, did the Old Test, did the Jews just try to reinterpret that stuff in order to fit their view of who God was? Uh, or is this all evidence that all religions are basically the same and we're all kind of getting to the right idea? Uh, that would be some examples of what this pagan theology would be. And Peter Van Maastricht is saying, although these other accounts might say some things about God, they are ripe with error. They're very distorted. They're very muddy waters. He says, uh, for example, uh, pagans 
in general, do not hold to a monotheistic claim. That is, they don't say that there's just one God, but he says uh, an innumerable amount of gods. He says nearly an infinite number of gods, among whom the sun, moon, and stars were also mere men. And he says, and if you look at the accounts of these gods in the pagan theologies, uh, these gods were not even holy. Uh, they weren't even virtuous. They were actually wicked, evil. They were selfish. They were very deranged. I, I hear a lot of times from the uh, new atheists, such as uh, men like Richard Dawkins and others, uh, that their claim against Christianity is how seemingly belligerent and cruel the Old Testament God was. And that they say, well, at least Jesus kind of you know, soften things up a little bit in the New Testament. Well, that's a distortion in and of itself. Uh, but I think those men, if they would read a little bit more of the ancient Near Eastern gods, uh, that the one true God of Israel was a contrast to, uh, they would blush at, at the way that these gods behaved. And I'm using the term gods uh, both plurally and with a lowercase g in mind, because it is true, as Peter Van Maastricht says, that these different nations, these competing theologies, the pagan theologies, um, were very confused about what God meant, what that, what was part, of, what was bound up in that phrase, and so you have this uh, polytheism, you have this expression of multiple gods, but f- fascinatingly, they have human characteristics, like they live and die, and they're not holy. And they're not set apart, and they're not sovereign because they're competing for power struggles and all of that kind of thing. And and you see that that struggle, that strife, that selfishness uh, in the battle between the gods is often what is used to describe how creation came to be and how uh, humans were created. And it's a very interesting to see that even though some of these gods had some. Uh, consistency with what we see in the Old Testament about who our God is, uh, that, as I say, the the waters are very muddy. It is very hard to try to work through all of that. So he says we grant that. Here's another thing we grant, uh, that pagan theology does recognize that God must be worshipped and that his will must be obeyed, but the way of worshiping God and the will of God that they were responsible to obey were thoroughly hidden. And then he says, for this reason, it devised for itself childish, impure, and horrendous ways of worshiping God. So two examples, one would be in the Old Testament and the, uh, just to use some of those uh, descriptors again, childish, impure, and plainly horrendous. Uh, You can see this in the Old Testament with the Baal worshippers. You can see it in the child sacrifice of uh, gods like uh, Molech. Uh, God indicts Israel because they adopt these childish, impure, horrendous ways of worship from all of their pagan neighbors. Then you fast forward to the New Testament, and Paul sees this same kind of thing. Uh, you read the book of Acts, it is uh, the Artemis worship that the Ephesians uh, were engaged with. Uh, it was uh, going to um, Athens and all of these different altars to all of these different gods. There's a confusion as to what worship looked like, and 
um, even the unknown god, uh, the the altar and idol is made just in case we missed one or just in case we get it wrong. Here's a, here's our last ditch ever. Here's our Hail Mary attempt at making sure that our worship is is proper. And this, of course, is totally against what the Bible has to say in terms of worshiping God. The Westminster Confession of Faith is a wonderful place to give an example of this, uh, that although we as creatures made in the image of God understand that there is a God and that he is to be worshipped and adored, uh, it says that we couldn't in our own uh, power devise what God is to be worshipped in the form that is acceptable in the uh, prescriptive elements of worship, like we couldn't come to terms on our own of what that looks like. And especially because God is holy and we are not, we couldn't hope to do so in a way that he would be appeased, that he, that he would appreciate and that he would deem as uh, worthy in his sight. And the confession says, but that's why God condescended. That's why God stooped down to speak to us, uh, i.e. our Bible. This is what we profess, is that there is a God. You can look to nature and see that is the case. You can see evidence of his existence everywhere. The fact that anything is speaks to the creator. But that doesn't mean that we understand what it means to be saved. That doesn't mean that we understand all that pleases God and all that does not. Uh, we need to hear from him. We need to be taught what that looks like. And so that is what our Bible is. It is God's self-revelation. It is God's uh, word to us uh, so that those things might not be uh, skeptical anymore, but that we might have a clear answer of those things. And he says that's a huge difference with uh, the pagan theology. Uh, he says that pagan theology taught some virtues, yet it was ignorant of their nature, their purposes, and essential ingredients, namely uh, that they should be devoted to the glorification of God, the advantage of one's neighbor, and one's own salvation. Uh, he goes on with, with that thought, but that's another example. Okay, you can find multiple religions that teach that it is sinful to murder someone else or to steal from someone else. Uh, but the question is, why? And going about answering that question, why, is what immediately sets apart one religion from another. Uh, you could even argue the same thing if, if you want to take Christianity out of the equation for a moment. You could put Islam and Buddhism together, and maybe they might both teach similar mor similar morals. Uh, but when the question is asked, why, what is the theology behind it? What's the mindset behind it? What is the end of, of that? Uh, they're going to go in different paths. Uh, the same is true with Christianity. Uh, Christianity sets itself apart from the answer to these questions because of the why behind it. Uh, and he speaks to that uh, at, at length. I, I won't go into all of that. I, I think that point has been made probably already. Uh, one other thing we grant, he says, we grant that pagan theology had some sort of conception of human misery. Nevertheless, it was plainly ignorant of the origin of this misery and ran after the worst remedies and sacrifices, even human sacrifices, and the worst sorts of other things. 
So again, you can see how these reasonings, uh, we keep cycling through some similar ideas. But his point is that pagan theology addresses some of the th- same things as Christian theology, uh, but the why is different. Uh, it becomes muddied with uh, mythological accounts. Uh, it starts tripping over its own words uh, so that you have the misery of human life, what we would call uh, the reality of sin, the fall of man. He says even these pagan theologies realize something is off, uh, but then they commit greater atrocities in order to try to remedy that. And I mentioned uh, I mentioned Molech and other gods where human sacrifices, child sacrifices, uh, these deities that promised uh, that if you sacrifice your child on a fire altar or something like that, uh, that you're going to get a greater increase or that it's better to sacrifice this human uh, so that your crops don't dry up in the, in the following year. Uh, just all of these things, all these elements, uh, you can see all over the place in the Old Testament. We can understand why uh, we don't want to just say, oh, yeah, well, we're all saying basically the same thing because uh, we're not. So he brings about uh, a couple different points there. All right, so now here's here's his second question. Uh, I'll, I'll maybe just uh, breeze past a couple other things he says, although everything here is very helpful. For the sake of time, I want to move to the second question. That is this. Is any kind of natural theology allowed? Well, he says, it is asked whether any natural theology, whether innate or acquired, is allowed. Some who attribute too much to natural theology err in excess at this point, just as the scholastics among the papists, that is Roman Catholics, do when, since they are helpless to sustain their doctrine of transubstantiation and other superstitions by revealed theology, they flee to their own philosophical theology, the closest thing to natural theology. He says we'll treat these things a little bit further on. Others dream of a kind of common theology by which anyone can be saved in his own religion. For an example of this, see Tommaso Capanella, from whom the Socinians do differ very much when they require that a person must believe only a very few things about God and Christ in order to be saved. So he draws on a lot of things there. Uh, he's he's already talking about, as a Protestant, he's already talking about transubstantiation and Roman Catholicism and all that. So that's that's really opening a whole bunch of whole bunch of cans of worms, a whole pallet of worm cans right there. Uh, but what he does is he's he's talking about how we have to be careful talking about just saying any kind of natural theology can be allowed without exception and without limits. Uh, that's what he gets to in, in question number three of, as to whether or not natural theology is sufficient for salvation. Uh, but he brings up two different errors. Number one, where a case can't be made enough in special revelation that we could have the tendency to drift over to natural revelation or natural theology. He brings up that point about transubstantiation because what he says is that Roman Catholics, when they teach, this is historically as well as as in the present day, when they teach that the doctrine of transubstantiation, that the bread and the wine on the table of the Lord, the Lord's Supper, that it is changed into the physical body and blood. When the bread and wine become the body and blood, transubstantiation, a change in substance, 
He says, you'll notice that what they don't do is appeal to special revelation. In other words, they're not citing book, chapter, verse, book, chapter, verse, book, chapter, verse. Uh, They might just appeal to something like uh, Jesus saying, this is my body, this is my blood. Uh, But they might leave it at that. What you will find, though, are hundreds of pages, maybe even thousands, over the course of church history uh, since this doctrine was really dreamed up. What you will find are hundreds, maybe thousands of pages devoted to the philosophical implications of what make that possible. And so you'll find um, the appeal to different schools of philosophy. So you'll find appeals to uh, Aristotle and others. Uh, In my mind, I think they actually misuse uh, those philosophers in order to justify uh, the difference between accidents and substance. But that's a whole whole other conversation for another time. But his point there, just at the outset, is to say, here's an example— of when we can lean too much on natural theology, or if we just allow any natural theology whatsoever. It's that we should be able to make our case via special revelation, and natural theology should be able to complement that. Uh, The error comes in when we can't make our case in special revelation, but we really want to make the case, so then we just default to any old system of philosophy, or in this case, natural theology, that seems to support that view. Uh, This is the problem with transubstantiation. But uh, he also says that this kind of thing can happen on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, He says that there is certainly an issue by the Socinians who deny all natural theology, whether innate or acquired, for this reason, so that they would not be compelled to admit that man had an original righteousness which involved a knowledge of divine things. Uh, Maybe not to say that it's in the same line as the Socinians, but uh, you could see this kind of thing in uh, more of the modern or contemporary theology of somebody like the, the late Karl Barth where in Bardian theology, there is a rejection uh, both of uh, special revelation in the Bible, as we say that the Bible is the Word of God uh, explicitly, and as well as uh, natural revelation. Uh, What he does is he kind of sidesteps both of those and says, uh, the only revelation that we have is Jesus Christ himself, and uh, that is the only kind that we need. And the Bible might contain the Word of God, but it has its limits, it has its errors, it has its issues, and we can never be sure that we have uh, the Word of God, but we go to the Bible because that's where the Word can be found. Uh, But he kind of makes a separation between what we even call revelation and the enterprise of theology and how he likes to call it is just all bound up in Christ, um, and it gets very confusing when when you do that. So maybe that's one example. Although he's not a mirror image of the Socinians, that's a whole other 
philosophical movement there. It it is a good example maybe of how we could go to one extreme or or the other. All right, so number three is the big question, uh, maybe the most important question that we could tackle, and that is, is natural theology sufficient for salvation? Now, I hope you know what I'm going to say. We've kind of answered this already. Uh, but he says that some may ask this question, whether natural theology is sufficient for salvation. There are those on one side who do not think it is useful at all. He says, for example, the Socinians, the Anabaptists, they're in basic agreement uh, about a hatred of philosophy. Uh, there are those on the other side who make so much of natural theology that it is seen as sufficient for salvation. Uh, he uses the example of Pelagius and others. Maybe the the modern uh, movement of liberal theology has drifted so far away from special revelation, uh, denying things such as the resurrection of Christ from the dead, the physical resurrection of Christ from the dead, I might add, um, the virgin birth of Christ, the divinity of Christ, and all of these things that are bound up in something as uh, crucial as the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, certainly all throughout the Bible where uh, those creeds have their basis. And here's the problem with that, is that if you go into some of these churches that have so repudiated uh, special revelation and so removed themselves uh, from the biblical teaching, the biblical gospel, uh, they have removed themselves from that, but they still advocate some kind of salvation, some kind of salvation by uh, personal struggle, just kind of trying to do the right thing, have the right morals, have a, a genuine interest in self-improvement. And because of that, well, you can you can gain Christ just the same. You can say that you're in possession of salvation. We don't really know what we mean by that because we don't believe in hell. We don't believe in a final judgment. We don't believe in what the Bible teaches about eternal life with Christ, living forever and ever physically with new bodies glorified. Like, we don't mean any of that, so it gets very confusing. But we still say that you can be saved in that way. And he says, really, as early back as, as Pelagius, there was this idea that, well, we don't really need salvation. We don't need an atonement. Uh, we just are basically good in general, and we kind of go from good to better. Uh, this is a huge issue, obviously. Uh, but it is the concept that even though people might not say, well, yeah, you can be saved by natural theology, um, it becomes a default position when you say, well, we don't need special revelation. Well, if that's true, then you could you could say all we need is natural theology, and that's all we need to be saved. Uh, whatever we mean by saved, that's really all we mean. That's really all we need. Uh, so he says that... There's issue here. Uh, obviously, the issue uh, comes down to several different uh, parts of Scripture that speak to this issue. He says, the Reform certainly acknowledged that natural theology is useful for refuting atheists, for demonstrating a deity, for some kind of worship in God. He refers back to Romans 1. And for rendering the pagans, including the philosophers, without excuse, he cites uh, Again, Romans 1, Acts 17, 1 Corinthians 11. He says, but they consider it in no way sufficient for salvation because a knowledge of Christ is required for justification. Isaiah 53, 10. 
uh, for eternal life, John 17, 3. Outside of Christ, there is no salvation, Acts 4, 12, John 14, 6. And insofar as Paul condemns and rejects philosophy as vain deception, Colossians 2, 8, the spirit of this world, 1 Corinthians 2, 12, worldly wisdom proper to natural men who do not understand the spirit of God, 1 Corinthians 2, and the wisdom of the flesh, which does not submit itself to the divine law and cannot do so, Romans 8. So he's laying this long line of what the uh, Reformed tradition says about natural theology, but he's, he's interjecting uh, scripture as a proof text for every point that he's making. He's saying that you won't find in the Reformed tradition a uh, snobbery towards natural theology. There are uses for it, but you also won't find in the Reformed tradition any leaning upon natural theology for salvation. Uh, this also goes for as we as Christians are engaged in apologetics. Uh, it, it means that when we are dealing with an unbeliever, uh, we have not done enough if we just reason or argue with them into uh, an arrival at the existence of God, uh, that we can just prove the the arguments of our faith. Well, we haven't saved anybody. We haven't demonstrated a sufficiency of, of salvation. Uh, we need the gospel. We need Christ himself to do the saving work. This really goes back to what he was talking about with theology at the outset, uh, you need a theoretical, practical theology. You need a theology that not just penetrates the mind, uh, but one that penetrates the heart and leads to a life of response as a result. So he's introducing this in a helpful way, I think, and he does so in a way that's really getting us uh, prepped for uh, what he's going to deal with uh, later on in uh, the practical part. Uh, the final question, he says this, uh, I'll just deal with this quickly. He says, what should we think about scholastic theology? Uh, he says, this is really, scholastic theology is is a middle way between natural and revealed theology, in so much as it teaches revealed things by natural method and arguments. He says, by scholastic theology, we do not understand here revealed theology as it is taught in the familiar manner of the schools, uh, he says, but rather that philosophical theology that is held in the school of the papists in order to sustain their doctrine of transubstantiation and other superstitions. Uh, so he's not talking here in the concept of, of all scholastic theology means um, natural theology in the positive sense. What he's really getting at here is scholastic theology as it's been practiced in Roman Catholicism, uh, specifically the kind of uh, mystical views, the, the mysticism of the change of substance in transubstantiation. Uh, he's going to deal with this much more later on, but l let me just maybe read uh, what he has to say. He's going to mention a couple different uh, theologians. Some you might uh, recognize their names, others maybe not. I'll just read the whole rest of the paragraph uh, in this case. He says, um, this philosophical theology was born under Lanfranc of Pavia while he was contending with Beringer over transubstantiation. 
In that dispute, at every point, Lanfranc lacked the authority of both Augustine and Scripture. Uh, <laughs> so what, he, what he's not doing here is he's not elevating Augustine to equal level with Scripture, but he's showing Augustine probably as one of the foremost church fathers uh, until the time of the Scholastics. So Augustine is the authority of the church fathers, we, we might say. Um, and so if you're wanting to demonstrate that you're in line with the historical tradition of the church fathers, you should probably be in agreement with Augustine. This is what makes uh, the Reformed argument, such as Calvin, specifically in his Institutes, so interesting, is that Calvin, again and again, when he's showing the Reformed view, uh, he's citing Augustine more than anybody else. He's also citing many of the other church fathers, but he's showing again and again that the Reformed arguments, uh, that Reformed theology, that the Reformation movement as a whole is a drawing back to our original roots uh, in many instances, especially as we agree on so much with Augustine. Uh, so that's probably why he's mentioning Augustine here, not because he's saying Augustine's equal with Scripture. So, okay, so sorry for the interjection. He says uh, he lacked the authority of both Augustine and Scripture insofar as nothing in Augustine or Scripture presents itself in favor of transubstantiation. At least at that time, this philosophical theology was more modest. But afterward, when quite dreadful philosophical terms were contrived, gradually it became more impudent, all the way up to Peter Lombard in his four books of sentences. Uh, some argue that was the first uh, systematic theology ever written. And from there to Albert the Great and his disciple Thomas Aquinas. By Aquinas, without any shame, not only were these quite dreadful philosophical terms augmented to an enormous extent, but also, disregarding the scriptures, the heads of the faith began to be demonstrated by philosophical reasons, and even Aristotle and others began to be considered equal to the scriptures, if not preferred over them. Concerning this kind of scholastic theology, it is now asked, what should we think? Uh, well, I mean, that's a pretty good historical trajectory of what's happened. He really says uh, there was a time where transubstantiation, which is so uh, elemental, no pun intended, to Roman Catholicism, the heartbeat of Roman Catholicism, the centerpiece, uh, is the Mass. And you can't have a Mass as the centerpiece without having a very particular theology of what's going on there. Uh, at the heart of the Mass is the doctrine of transubstantiation, where the bread and wine is, uh, upon the prayer of consecration, is turned into the physical body and blood of Christ. Uh, so there is a sacrifice happening. There's a sacrificial element, not a sacramental, but a sacrificial element happening there. And he's saying there was a time when that was not the case. And certainly when it was first introduced, it was a modest proposal. It was not the dogmatic view of Roman Catholicism, but he says over time it begins to take a, a position of prominence. And he says it was really it was really codified by Peter Lombard, Albert the Great, and Thomas Aquinas. And that is a sad thing, uh, because uh, there is a lot to be 
appreciated about somebody like Thomas Aquinas, um, but it is true that when you read somebody like Thomas Aquinas, uh, this is a dogmatic point of the church, so dogmatic uh, that to break away from that, it breaks you away from the grace of God. So you're in a very, very dangerous position. And I might add, uh, with all of the other sacraments, the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, outside of which there is no salvation. What Peter Lombard, or what uh, Peter Van Maastricht, rather, is arguing here is not that all of these theologians are evil, demonic, and have no use. Just as he's arguing that um, not all natural theology is evil, demonic, and has no use. But what he's saying is these men are good examples of what it looks like to gradually move away from the authority of Scripture, special revelation, the greater of the two, and to uh, wedge yourself into natural theology. Uh, To do so basically by beginning to cite the philosophers, especially Aristotle. Um, so much so that they begin to be preferred over Scripture. It's more, it's more profound, it's more uh, proficient even to cite Aristotle, uh, metaphysics or something like that, uh, than it is to cite uh, the Gospel of John or something like that. So the, the point is, uh, this is how this happens, and this is what's happened in the uh, Roman Catholic Church. There's a good deal of good Uh, that has been done throughout church history. Uh, When you look at Roman Catholics and their interaction with uh, philosophical views, uh, debates, and all of that kind of thing, Uh, I would even argue that Christians that kind of have a um, just me and my Bible mentality that aren't interested in some of the uh, more useful aspects of natural theology uh, should should maybe learn a little bit. Uh, from some who were even Roman Catholic on this point. This is a debated issue here, but this is my opinion. But we also should look at things like Roman Catholicism as a warning sign of what it looks like when you begin to prefer natural theology over uh, particular special revelation, revealed theology, as Peter Van Maastricht calls it. Uh, Because what happens is we begin to cite philosophies and philosophers uh, and arguments based in that direction so much so that we remove ourselves from the scriptures, the the scriptures become irrelevant. And that's a dangerous place to be in. But he says that's really at the heart of how these distortions take place. And he really uses transubstantiation as a uh, really great talking point here. Not because that's the only error involved in Roman Catholicism, but it seems to be the most important doctrine in Roman Catholicism today. And because of that, it's one of the most important errors that we could possibly look at. And it serves as a great illustration here of, of the warning that we as, as Christians, we as, as Protestants, uh, should keep in mind. Uh, the importance of balance uh, is key and natural and revealed theology. But I might say uh, that it's not a 50-50 split here. Uh, Peter Van Maastricht has already talked about the value of natural theology. He's talked about how it always is validated in special revelation and revealed theology. Uh, The Bible is not going to contradict natural theology and vice versa. But we will say 
what we need for our salvation, what is the most important of the two, is revealed theology. Because we couldn't properly understand God, we couldn't know how to worship Him, we couldn't know how to be saved apart from revealed theology in Scripture. Uh, we can have the tendency to embrace this at the exclusion of natural theology, but we could also begin to scoff at this to the point that we gravitate to natural theology and leave our Bibles in the dust. So these are the warnings from both sides of the, uh, both extremes, we might say. And Peter Van Maastricht, I think, does a great job of helping us to really understand what's at stake. And that really moves him to page 86, the practical part of all of this. But we'll leave that for our next episode, and that wraps things up for today. So thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Teaching Thursdays as we continue to work our way through Theoretical Practical Theology with Peter Van Maastricht. And I can't wait to be with you for another episode as we get into the practical part of this nature of theology. And we'll pick things up on page 86. And we will work our way all the way to page number 98. But I hope you take care in the meantime, and I will see you soon on another episode of the Better Bible Reading Podcast with Kevin Morse. Take care.